Wednesday night are sort of meat and potatoes here at Athey Creek. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. And uh, we're gonna finish up, Lord, Lord willing, we're gonna finish up the Gospel of Mark this Wednesday night. Uh, and then we'll pick up at the Gospel of Luke as we go right through the Bible together. Um, we draw our Sunday morning text from our upcoming Wednesday as we'll do today. Um, so if you'd turn with me to Mark chapter 16, the last chapter uh, of the Gospel of Mark. So in chapter 15, we spent the last several weeks seeing the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, the holy of holies of the, of the Bible, if you would. Um, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then in chapter 16, we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before he ascends into heaven, he gives an admonition. Uh, and I'd like to just focus on his first words uh, this morning and keep it simple. The first words of this great admonition to the disciples not just the disciples, but to any disciples. Uh, from that day forward, um, Jesus gives a charge to his disciples about what he wants us to do. So it's Mark chapter 16, verse 15 is our text for the morning. Mark 16, 15. And he, Jesus, said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Again, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. What a huge charge this is and, and an important challenge to the disciples to go and preach the gospel to every creature. And the question is, how are we doing? How are we doing with the preaching of the gospel? Um, the word gospel is one that you know, we use as Christians and we toss it around, but it's not really used anywhere else in the English language, it comes from a Greek word where we get our word evangelical or evangelion is the word that's used here in the Greek text. And it means the good news. And it's also our English word we use gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's good news. And this has been a gospel of action. Jesus taught his disciples to get going. He's telling them to move into action and they're to go. And by the way, he's saying to, that, you, to you and me, to us today, if we're disciples, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've been called to action by Jesus himself. And if that's true, why is it so hard for some of us to move into action when it comes to preaching the gospel? Now, I, I'm, I know that there's probably some here who are preachers of the gospel. And if you're doing that, good for you, keep going. But I suspect there's a lot of us for various reasons are apprehensive about sharing the gospel with people or, or maybe we're very elusive in how we share the gospel. We, we're maybe tiptoeing around our friends, our co-laborers, our classmates, our football team, whatever we're involved, whenever we're involved with people, you're a little nervous about preaching the gospel and there's an apprehension. Why is that? What's, in it, what, what's within humanity, the Christian, the disciple of Jesus that is hesitant to share what it's called, good news. Don't you love giving good news to people? We need to get back to the idea that you have really good news to share with people. How are you doing with that? Are you, are you tired of sharing the good news? I know it's a, speaking of tired, it's a tired illustration, but you know, if, if after the service I said, okay, you're all dismissed. Oh, by the way, just a heads up, uh, there, if you go down the stairs, if you go down the exit down the stairs, just a warning to y'all, there's a guy outside, uh, he's got a weapon and he's shooting people as they come out the door. Just a heads up, give you a, would you guys be thankful that I told you that? But that's ridiculous. Well, what if that's true? And, and also, same coincidentally, outside the, the door that goes to the west, out to this parking lot area, there, guess who came to Athey Creek? Elon Musk. He drove his little Tesla into church today and there's Elon out there and he's got a checkbook and he's writing checks for $1 million to anybody who walks up to him and he'll just hand him a check. Would you want me to tell you about that too? Hey, by your way, you got shot out that door, but if you go out this door, you get a million dollar check from Elon. Would you be thankful that I gave you the good news as opposed to the bad news? Um, but I would just argue the good news that you're withholding in your heart right now about it makes that comparison seem like nothing. Because getting shot by some gun, gunman, that's bad. But what's worse, going to hell for all eternity or being shot on a rainy day in Portland? Um, or, or, or how much better is heaven and eternal life through Jesus Christ versus Elon Musk? Well, a million dollars doesn't go as far as it once did. 
So what, a check for a million dollars, that's tiny compared to the glory of the gospel. You have within your hands the glory of the gospel message. And guess what? Jesus has entrusted you as a disciple to say, I'm gonna go tell people about that. Oh, but Brett, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can share the gospel. I, I'm not a theologian. That's what we pay you for, Pastor Brett. You're the gospel preacher. You're the one who's supposed to do it. No, no, anyone who considers himself a disciple. Now, I get to teach and preach the gospel, but I also spend time teaching theology and we go through the Bible. So I, I do try to cover even the difficult subjects. And, and some of you are like, well, I can't do that. So I'm not gonna preach the gospel. But we confuse, that's not the, go- the gospel is very simple, very concise. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have your hermeneutics and your homiletics, and you don't have to have your eschatology all dialed in, and you don't have to be able to argue eloquently Calvinism versus Arminianism, all that stuff. No, you are a disciple of Christ. You are the number one challenge you've been given is not to argue theology, but your challenge has been given to just preach the gospel. Tell people about the good news of the gospel message. I think sometimes, you know, as you look through history, there have been people that got the gospel bug to share the gospel with people. Um, there's some great missionaries who got the calling. Well, Brad, I don't, I'm not called to Africa or China. Well, those, there's, there's some great people that were called to radical missionary work and they're preaching the gospel. Probably one of my favorite guys to learn about and read about is James Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was one of the more famous uh, Christian missionaries. He was a interesting British Baptist Christian missionary that uh, he was the f- founder of China Inland Missions. Um, and he spent 54 years in China as a missionary back in the 1800s. Um, what's interesting about him is he was hugely effective uh, and, and his stories, I mean, if you've ever got a chance to read a story about Hudson Taylor, you know, a biography or something, it's worth a read. He, you know, after you read about this guy, it makes you realize I got a lot of room and that I need to increase my trust in the Lord. And like there'd be, he and his family would have no food on the table and they'd bless the food that they didn't even have on the table. They were literally nothing. And they'd say, oh, Lord, bless the food we're about to eat. And sure enough, knock, 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 somebody would drop some food off on the front doorstep. Like the stories of this guy are kind of profound how, he, how the Lord took care of him. But um, in, in his 54 years, he brought more than 800 missionaries to China uh, and he started more than 125 schools in his ministry. But he directly uh, res- uh, resulted in 20,000 Christian converts uh, in China during his ministry, 20,000. In those days, that was quite a fruitful uh, ministry. But what was it that kind of fueled him? He, he definitely had the, the gospel, something he wanted to share, but he tells a story about early in his ministry in China in October of 1857, he began to minister in a place called Ningpo, China. Um, and he had led a, a Mr. Nyi to the Lord. Uh, and Mr. Nyi accepted Jesus as a savior. But um, the, the, the man asked you know, Hudson Taylor, he said, Mr. Taylor, he said, how long have you guys in England known of this gospel message? And Hudson Taylor thought, strange question. <laughs> but he said, well, we've known for centuries. Uh, we've known about Jesus the Messiah for centuries. Um, and Mr. Nee again asked Hudson Taylor and said, my father died um, seeking the truth, not knowing the gospel. He said, why didn't you come sooner? And Hudson Taylor heard that question um, and had no answer, but it was a penetrating question that forever changed him. Why would I wait any other second to not preach the gospel to every opportunity, to every person that I possibly can because it's life and death eternal. And Hudson Taylor grabbed on to the gravity of the gospel message of what it meant. And I wonder if you and I understand that same gravity. There's people that are lost. Oh, so many people. We live, you know, Portland, Oregon has been a post-Christian culture for quite some time. Um, one of the reasons I moved here 27 years ago with my wife and family is because uh, Seattle and Portland were jockeying back and forth as the least church cities in America. Uh, the most irreligious towns, uh, they were noted as that. And that's one of the reasons we moved here is to preach the gospel. See, I've learned, I've been to Africa. I've been to some of these countries where you know we used to send missionaries and we still should, I suppose. But I think you and I have a monstrous mission field right here in front of us. But here's what I'm finding, and I'm just gonna tell you this uh, because I really think Athey Creekers need to grab onto this. 
when I moved up here 27 years ago, we were definitely a post-Christian culture here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but you know what I think we are in right now? I think we're in a post-post-Christian era right now. What do you mean, Brett? I think after watching what's happened to the post-Christian culture in Portland, I think people are ready to hear the gospel again, primed and ready. It's been 25 years, I think at least, since people have really even heard what a real gospel is. And, and sadly, a lot of the churches, we drop the ball. If you go to some churches, you'll never hear the gospel. You'll hear, oh, if you accept Jesus, you get to go to our church. And it's all about community. And it's like, can I just say, those that say it's all about community, you are totally wrong about that. Now, now don't get me wrong, Christian church provides community and it's a fun thing and it's nice and it's wonderful. But these, this was the narrative for the past 20 years of churches. It's all about community. No, it's not. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ that would keep people out of the fires of hell. I hope people understand the church has dropped the ball when it comes to the gospel. The Americanized gospel has become so convoluted that people don't even know what they're hearing anymore. Uh, if you ask the average person, they'd say, well, the gospel means you have to go to church and have community and you gotta you know, give your tithes and offering and you'll love, you'll love going to church. It's gonna be awesome. You'll love our church. And then they go to your church and go, a bunch of weirdos. Uh, that's the booby prize to go to that church. That's not wonderful or great. No, we gotta remember, what are we here to speak of? Jesus said, go into all the world and talk about missionary work. Nope, go into all the world and speak in tongues. Nope, go into all the world and give to the poor. Nope. Those are all things that we get to do, but what you and I should be about, the church of Jesus Christ should be about the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say, Paul the apostle gives us an interesting model. If you kind of follow his ministry, there's something to learn from Paul the apostle. See, one of the barriers I think some of you guys have is what I mentioned. You don't think you know enough theology to share the gospel. Brett, that's your job. You know the Bible, so you tell people about Jesus. But see, some of you are kind of petrified because like, well, what if they ask me a question? Um, and they always do. You know, if you say, I believe in Jesus, you know, and Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And they say, yeah, well, did God have, uh, did, did Adam have a belly button? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? They'll ask the dumb questions. That's a dumb, you know how that your teacher said, there's no such things as dumb questions? Well, there, it turns out there, there are. <laughs> um, if you know elementary logic, a false dilemma question like that uh, is not worthy of an answer. Uh, but, but all that to say, um, you're not responsible for being a seminary grad to have an MDiv. But what you are responsible is to be able to preach the gospel. And you know what? I'm just gonna tell you, that's not hard. In fact, I'll show you today in the Bible where God writes it in Crayola for you and for me. It's really simple. It's, it's profoundly simple. And I wanna show you the progression of Paul the Apostle because Paul was a preacher of the gospel. In fact, Paul the Apostle would say, I, Paul the Apostle, a minister of the gospel. Like that was his title. So he was kind of the dude when it comes down to preaching the gospel. So let's learn from Paul. And the first place I want you to see is Acts chapter 17. Would you flip over to Acts the book of Acts, uh, just turn to the right a little bit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts is right up there. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul the apostle has a massively cool opportunity to preach the gospel. Um, and you gotta understand who Paul the apostle is. He is one of the most cerebral thinking people that ever walked the earth. Do you understand that? That Paul the apostle was brilliant. Um, I went to a secular university uh, that was kind of uh, similar to Berkeley, I mean, Berkeley, uh, very godless, very anti-Christian, anti-Bible, all that stuff. But shockingly, even in my secular university where I attended, um, one of the assignments, along with reading Homer and, and the Aeneid and the Iliad and Odyssey and all these, you know, and, the, and, and some of the other Greek, you know, poets and what have you and epics and all this, we read all these things. But one of the assignments we were given at the secular, along with all those readings was Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34. And you say, well, why did they have you read that at a secular university? Because interestingly, did you know that of all the ancient Greek writers, no one even holds a candle to, to, to Paul the apostle. 
There were several styles of Greek. Uh, most of the New Testament was written in a Koine Greek, which is like a real street level, kind of your average person kind of talking level language. But Paul right here uses one of the most eloquent forms of Greek. In fact, if you compare Homer to, um, to Paul the Apostle and their use of the language, Homer's like a kindergarten level. And Paul the Apostle is this brilliant orator. And that's why even secular people hold this up Acts 17, verses 22 through 34, as one of the great ancient writings in the Greek language, because there's a vocabulary that nobody even comes close to. Paul is being very eloquent here. And he's gonna preach to who? The men of Athens. Not just the average men, but the philosophers, the brainiacs. The smartest people in the world were in Athens at that time of history. And, and they had a place that they would go and just talk about smart stuff. And they would debate and talk about you know, theology, or um, they talk about uh, philosophy, or even science, and sometimes religion. Um, and these were all the thinkers, and they went to a place uh, that was right there in Athens called Mars Hill. It was a little hill, but it was a hill of stone, big rocks. I've been to this place. It's a place you can go in Athens State, Mars Hill. And they would sit around on these rocks and philosophize and talk. Well, Paul the Apostle, has an opportunity to preach to these brainiac dudes at Athens. And he's gearing up for these guys at Mars Hill. Let's see what he does. It's Acts 17, verse 22. It says, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, your margin might read the gods that you worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him, declare I to you. Brilliant, Paul, brilliant, yay. Good job, buddy. What's he doing? Well, he's, he's, he's blowing these guys out of the water. Check it out. He, he walks through Athens, observes all the gods and deities. You know, the men of Athens had hundreds and hundreds of gods and goddesses. Um, there were some big ones, but there were also hundreds of little ones, uh, gods. And they were all, you know, uh, in marble and, uh, you know, stone and even silver and gold. They worshiped these gods and goddesses. Um, and, he, and he appeals to that. He says, I was walking through Athens and I saw your gods and goddesses, but I noticed one of yours was to the unknown God. Now, what was this? Paul was observing something that actually was there. Um, see, the men of Athens were so into the, you know, polytheism, many gods, they were worried they may have forgotten a God. What if we left one out? Well, they made this monument to the one they forgot, to the unknown God, just in case we left one out. Here's the worshiping the unknown God. And they literally worshiped the unknown God. Paul brilliantly weaves this in and says, okay, it's that God that you left out that I'm gonna share with you about. And you know, implication, I'm gonna talk about the real God that you've left out. Brilliant, Paul. Awesome, so what does he say? He goes into that God and says there uh, in, uh, in verse 24. And it says, God, Paul says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. I wonder if Paul was pointing up the hill, because Mars Hill, you look up the hill and there you see the Parthenon, uh, the temple of the gods there. And I wonder if he said, the God I'm talking about, the unknown, he doesn't live in those temples. Brilliant, Paul, brilliant. In fact, if we, if we break this down, I, I, I love what he does here. It's, it's actually pretty impressive. In the first thing, in verse 24, he talks about the greatness of God as creator. Now, by the way, that's actually a pretty good thing to talk about when you're talking about faith and theology is, you know, if you can get past, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that makes everything else pretty easy after that. So I get why Paul is going to creator God because the Greek mythology gods, uh, they were confusing. There was too many to number, but he's saying, I'm talking about the one who actually created the heaven and the earth. And he appeals to the creator or the greatness of creator God. Then in verse 25, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath to all things. The second point that he makes here in his oration is the goodness of God as provider. He gives us everything we need, life and breath and all things that we need. This is the God I wanna to talk to you about. So he appeals to the greatness of God as creator, 
The goodness of God is provider. And then in verse 26, it says, and he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel him, uh, feel after him and find him though he be not very far from every one of us. In other words, not up on Mount Olympus where all the Greek gods are, he's with us and he wants to you know, have this personal relationship. That's what God's, uh, you know, the God uh, is, is you know, talking about. So this is speaking about the government God, of God as ruler. He defines that in verse 26 saying, he's made the nations to dwell where they dwell. God orchestrated that. He's the ruler of all things. So creator, provider, ruler, this is how Paul is appealing to these intellectual giants. But then he goes on. It says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much as we are of the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Again, all these statues, beautiful statues, amazing artistry these Greeks had with their gods and goddesses. But Paul says, that's not the God that is made with man's hands, but he's the one in whom we live and move and have all of our being, our, our very life and all the goodness of life comes from him. And that's why we sort of tag this next argument in uh, verse 28 as the grace of God as our savior. Um, this is how God rolls. And Paul, by the way, did you see what Paul did there? Brilliant, brilliant. He quoted from the uh, invocation to Zeus. Did you know that? These guys had an invocation to Zeus that they prayed to Zeus all the time. Um, sort of the supreme God of the Greeks. Um, and he quotes it there in uh, verse 28 at the end when he says, for even as your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Brilliant, Paul, You're, you've related to them on their gods and their stone and all this stuff, their unknown God monument. And now you're quoting, see, I wonder if Paul's thinking, I want them to know I'm not stupid. I've read the Greek you know, orations. I, I know the, the invocation to Zeus. And so I wonder if Paul's like, I just want, don't want them thinking I'm some dummy. So he's using this eloquent Greek, using these great orations about this, that, and the other thing, and quoting from the poets of the Greeks, Brilliant, Paul, brilliant. But we go on in verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of God as like silver and gold, the, all the statues and stuff. Um, but verse 30, and the times of this ignorance, God winked at, uh, that's a fanciful Greek way of saying, sort of as overlooked this for now. Um, but God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Ooh, now he's getting to it. Paul said the word to repent, which to them would have meant to change your mind about what they think about God. They need to change. So Paul's getting there. Repent. Because, verse 31, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness that by, that, uh, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Okay, now, you have to understand, the Greeks didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't really believe in this. Um, Paul, you can almost sense his apprehension as he's sharing. Now he's getting to the repentance part, and he's getting to the part where he's talking about, well, if you're a Christian, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, you already recognize what Paul's talking about. You might have noticed, who is Paul talking about by that man who he hath ordained, where he's given assurance to all men that we raised him from the dead? Who are we talking about there? Well, you guys know it's Jesus because you know Jesus is the one who raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who was ordained by God the Father to come and save the world from his sin and judgment in righteousness. You know that, but did those guys know that? The answer is no, they didn't. It's almost as if Paul is tiptoeing around the controversial part about the resurrection and about repentance. And he just kind of starts talking about this resurrection of the dead. And now what happens? Well, this is where we see the response from these brainiac Greek Athenian men. It says there in verse 32, and when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again on this matter. In other words, later, dude, you're done. We're done listening to you for now. 
So verse 33, Paul departed from among them. How do you think he felt about this? They mocked him and they said, yeah, whatever, later, dude. Now you say, well, but there's some fruit. Look at, look at verse 33. So Paul departed from them in verse 34, Howbeit certain men claved to him and believed among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So a couple people got saved or followed Paul and listened to him later and got saved. You say, well, that's great, wonderful. But, but wait a minute. Paul, if you know his ministry, when he would go and preach in other places, thousands of people would accept Christ and be saved and, and come to faith. Thousands and thousands. What happened here? You see, while the world even to this day says, wow, that was a great oration. Paul, what a brilliant thinker and what a great communicator, blah, blah, blah. But can I just say, swing and a miss? As brilliant as Paul tries to sound intellectual and talk to these guys, the fruit of this sermon was not good. Isn't it funny that this is the same sermon <clears throat> that the world uh, uh, applauds today in secular universities? And it's the one that is kind of a failure. Can I just suggest what probably the biggest failure is in this sermon? Not one time did he mention the name of Jesus Christ. He left Jesus out of it. Oh, Brett, he talked about the one who resurrected from the dead but he didn't say the one was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. I believe Paul messed up here. Well, Brad, I don't know about that. How do you know for sure? Well, not far from Athens is a place called Corinth. I've been to both places. And Athens was the intellectual center <clears throat> of, of the world at that time. But Corinth was sort of the Las Vegas of the intellectual center. Like just go down the road to Corinth and that's where you can have uh, all kinds of uh, heathen sexual stuff and you can get into all kinds of trouble in Corinth. The Corinthian people were a godless, perverted bunch of people. Paul rolls into Corinth and he preaches the gospel and thousands of people are saved there. The church at Corinth. Now, I'll admit, the Corinthian church was nothing but work, work, work for poor Paul the apostle. They were a bunch of stinkers. I'm so glad I'm not the pastor of the church at Corinth um, because they were, they, Paul had to spank these guys all the time. That's a whole nother story. But, but nonetheless, how did Paul win over the, the people of Corinth, uh, they're the Corinthian church? How did that happen? Well, Paul tells us, and this sort of shows us Paul's graduation from the sermon on Mars Hill to another way of preaching. And we see that there in 1 Corinthians chapter two. Would you flip over there? Flip over, Acts, Romans, and then you get to 1 Corinthians where we come to Paul and, and he uh, explains how he approached the gospel to the Corinthians, which is gonna be very different than that of the Mars Hill people. 1 Corinthians chapter two, Verse one, Paul says, and I brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or the wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to do anything among you, save or accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is huge. I have to tell you, this is how you and I should approach sharing the gospel. If you think you have to be the Mars Hill, Paul the Apostle, sharing with your buddies at Intel or at your school or your neighborhood and come off really intellectual and like you've got all the arguments down, uh, that's gonna be a swing and a miss. I've been a pastor for a lot of years and I, I, I can think of almost no one who accepted Jesus Christ because they were intellectually, academically uh, lured in by, by uh, you know, extreme logic and science. It's not really the way it works. Because it, it turns out that, you know, this is a thing called faith. And, and, and it's a thing that is really something a person has to come to grips with. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the key message. It's not winning the argument. It's, it's just showing people their need for salvation through Jesus Christ. And Paul does this. In fact, as we break this down, three things to consider. Paul's approach, verse one and two was very different than that of Mars Hill. His approach says, he says, not with excellency of speech. 
the, the fanciful Greek language uh, or oration quoting the Zeus poets, not with excellency of speech. Um, verse two, um, I, but I've determined to know nothing save or accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. His approach was that of simplicity. And that can be your approach too. You gotta put down this idea that you have to be some intellectual giant to share the gospel. No, this is, this is the simple gospel message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That would be his approach in Corinth. And by the way, if you wanna know what city is a lot like Corinthian city, but only a couple thousand years later, Portland, Oregon. We are very much like the Corinthian church. When you read the Corinthians, you're like, oh yeah, this, could, this letter could have been written to Portlanders. Um, and as it turns out, you and I should approach it the same way. Um, so his approach was that of simplicity. The, notice Paul's attitude, verses three and four. He came with fear and much trepidation or trembling. Um, his speech was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but what kind of power did he come with? Power from God. One of the things the Holy Spirit promises you and me as Christians is that when you speak the gospel, he will give you the words to say and he'll give you power to speak them. And it's not of your, your, your humanity wisdom that you have or your great knowledge of God's word. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I'm not arguing for being stupid and never studying the Bible. And uh, obviously we spend a lot of time studying the scriptures, but that's here in church. Um, we're, we're supposed to do that here in church, learn more about the Bible. But when you're out there preaching the gospel, you don't have to be a MDiv seminarian grad um, where you know how to explain all the details. That's, that's a misnomer. Paul says, man, I didn't come with you my enticing words and my uh, man's wisdom, but I came in demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in me. That's what he's saying. So his attitude was weakness and fear and trusting of the Lord to give him the words to say. And then lastly on this, I wanna show you Paul's aim. He spells that out in verse five. He says that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When a person gets saved, you don't want them being saved because you were so slick. You were so smart that you converted them to faith. Because I would venture to say that's, that's not, that person's not gonna be able to stand for any length of time in faith if it's built on your wisdom or your knowledge or your ability to convince them of the truth. That person needs to stand in the power. In the same way you and I were saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've got to stand in the wisdom of God, not in the wisdom of man. And Paul gets that now. I, I don't think he got that in, in Acts 17. He was still kind of early in his ministry. And he's like, uh, I'll be really smart and I'll outsmart them and I'll, I'll logically approach them with wisdom and fanciful words. Now Paul's saying, yeah, I hung all that up. Now I come knowing nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified, not with excellency of speech or fanciful words, but in fear and trepidation, but trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit through me. Because see, some of you are like, Brett, the reason I don't share the gospel, I'm kind of afraid. You know, they might fire me. Well, if you're sharing the gospel when you should be working, that's not a good testimony. Uh, just, just know that. But after work or in the break room or during lunch or whenever you have an opportunity, um, you might be fearful, that's okay. That's how Paul, was successful as he had fear and he thought, oh man, I don't know how I'm gonna do this, but I'm gonna have to trust in the Lord and the Holy Spirit to speak through me. And, and that's worth praying for. When you talk to somebody, just whisper a little prayer in your heart and say, Lord, speak, to me, speak through me by your spirit. And it's amazing. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. Unless you've done this, you don't know about this, but if you've done it, where you've spoken to someone boldly about the gospel, have you ever noticed how shocking it is that the Lord shows up and he gives you the words to say, and it's much more simple than what you would have mustered up, but it's simply profound. That's the way the Lord works. He wants to speak through you by his spirit. Now, you say, okay, Brett, so he learned his lesson from Acts 17 all the way to 1 Corinthians, big difference, simplicity of the gospel, and he shared the gospel. But what is the gospel? Well, Paul would later on identify the gospel that he preached to these guys. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, later on in Corinthians, he spells it out in a nutshell. What is the gospel? Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there I'll show you where he writes it in crayon for us. For those of us that are simpletons, we need it spelled out easily. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Man, this is worth memorizing, by the way, uh, particularly verse three and four. But let's start in verse one of 1 Corinthians 15. 
It says in verse one, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. Um, how are they standing in the gospel? Is it because he gave enticing words and man's wisdom? No, it was by the power of the spirit that allowed them to receive the gospel and they're still standing all the way to chapter 15. They're still standing in that gospel of, of what Paul preached. Verse two, by which you are also saved if you keep in memory what I preached to you unless you have believed in vain. Does that make anybody nervous? What if I believe in vain? And am I not saved? What does it mean to believe in vain? It, it, it's kind of like this. There is a belief that doesn't save. And there is a belief or a faith that saves. What's the difference? I, I would refer to Satan on this one. Question, does Satan believe in Jesus? Does Satan believe Jesus exists? Of course he does. Does Satan believe Jesus died on the cross? You might even ask, does Satan believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world? I'm gonna say yes. Satan believes all that. But does he believe to the point of, well, like, like it says here, you know, it says faith in vain. You can have faith that's just vanity. It amounts to nothing. That's what Satan has. But saving faith is the person who says, I believe not only what Jesus did, but what he said, that we need to appropriate that salvation and receive it. And that's what Satan didn't do. Satan didn't say, I repent of my sins and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And he didn't receive that in faith. That's why his faith was in vain. And, and sadly, Paul's just saying, be careful that you're not having faith in vain where you go, oh yeah, Jesus exists and he died on a cross. But you gotta remember, if you wanna be truly saved, you gotta believe in not a vanity kind of belief, but a real belief. So Paul kind of goes over that, but then he spells it out. What are you supposed to believe? What's the gospel that you preached? Well, he tells us in verse three and four. Verse three says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Question, where did Paul the apostle receive the gospel message? Anybody remember? The road to Damascus, who preached it to him? Jesus Christ himself, that's a pretty good preacher. Uh, do you remember Paul was going to persecute the church and he was going to kill imprisoned Christians and suddenly, poof, Paul gets knocked off his horse and a bright light and now he's freaking out and, he, and uh, he says, Paul, why do you, or Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who, who are you, Lord? This, this pagan guy believes that whoever's talking to him is the Lord of all and he really was. And he explained to him, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It would be at that moment, Paul would be introduced to the true Jesus, the Jesus of the cross, Christ, and him crucified for the sins of the world. There would be Paul's beginning journey to be a person of faith and later having explained by others and receiving the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says, I'm just delivering to you guys in Corinth that which I also received. But you have to understand the people of Corinth have to say, yeah, but he received it from Jesus himself. So he's got authority on this subject. That's kind of the idea. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, as, as the scriptures declare, and that he rose again on the third day, just like the scriptures declare. Question, what scriptures is Paul referring to? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Those scriptures didn't exist at that time. So what scriptures was he referring to here? The Old Testament. Those scriptures declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I want you to know that because that's what Paul's referring to here. And people, wrongly think the Old Testament is not about Jesus. That's one of the biggest goofs people make. And that's why major pastors like Andy Stanley goes around saying, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The reason he says that is he doesn't see the power of Christ in the Old Testament. Don't follow that kind of bad advice. The Old Testament is powerful. Jesus talked to these two guys on the road to Emmaus about himself in the Old Testament scriptures. And, and uh, boy, I wished I could get, uh, download that teaching. Um, Jesus teaching these guys about himself from the Old Testament. 
But Paul says, even as the scriptures declare, Christ died on the cross. Question for you Wednesday nighters, maybe let's see if you remember. If you were to turn like someone to the Old Testament scriptures, a Jewish person, for example, who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you can show them in the Old Testament scriptures, Christ, him crucified, buried, and on the third day rose again. Paul said, it's according to the scriptures. What's a chapter of the Bible you might turn them to? Psalm 22, we, we went through that on Wednesday night. It's called the Psalm of the Cross, written a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, but with such precision and detail, it, it's a prophetic word from David the king, who's also a prophet. David prophesies about the cross in Psalm 22, and it starts out in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? That's Jesus's words on the cross. And then it goes on and talks about my, my hands were pierced and my feet were nailed. You know, like, like it's all the cross is right there a thousand years earlier. The reason I say that is really the whole Bible, when you get into the deep theology and all the heavy stuff, it still points back to the simplicity of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything in the Bible points right back to the ultimate truth. The, the part that's written out in crayon for you and me right here. I gave you the gospel message, that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, according to the scriptures, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is the gospel in a nutshell. I don't care if you're a kindergartner here or a 40 year old, we can remember this. We can remember this gospel message. And that's what's, when Jesus gives us this admonition in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel, that's what he's talking about. That we get to preach to people that are sinners doomed for hell. We get to say, hey, guess what? Good news, the gospel, good news. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, just like the Bible said he would. And when he did that, he was buried and rose again the third day. And that's the gospel. You can share that. Well, I don't know uh, uh, about that. Well, what about the uh, you know, contradiction? If God is love, then why would he send people to hell? They'll start trying to get you off the, 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 the single gospel message. Just get right back onto the gospel. Um, and how do you do that? Well, God is love. And he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. And if you accept that and believe that, you will not go to hell. You're right, God is love. Like, it's such a simple message and the world tries to, yeah, but, but just keep getting right back to the gospel because that's where the truth is. And let the Holy Spirit, like Paul said, I'm not gonna come with man's wisdom, your MDiv or your seminarian graduate certificate. No, you're gonna come with the wisdom of God and the gospel and the power of the Spirit speaking through you. And I'm gonna tell you guys, many of you know this already, but there's nothing greater when the Lord uses you to preach the gospel. When you go and boldly, with fear and trepidation, but you boldly say, I'm gonna share the gospel with this person, it's, it's cool. Brett, well, what if they reject it? Uh, you know, what's interesting is you're not, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is preach the gospel. I would suggest though that some of you might be shocked how many people are primed and ready right now to receive the gospel. I think with all the things that are going on in the world, stuff people are seeing, sin that is rampant, people are walking around with guilt and condemnation and bummed out and depressed. We're living in a culture right now where we can with power declare the gospel, which is the good news. And I think people are more receptive than you might think. You know, we're seeing that here in a small way at Athey Creek, you know, just even last Sunday, you know, if you, if you didn't go to all the services, um, you know, you missed, we do five services. Last Sunday, there were over 40 people throughout all the services that accepted Christ and now are saved by the grace of God through the gospel message. That's, that's really cool. That's really, really cool. But I wonder how much more we could do. You see, there's a bunch of people that would never set foot in this sanctuary and listen to this windbag yak about the Bible. A lot of people won't do that. You will do that because most of you here are probably Christians and you believe the Bible and you see value in studying the scripture and that's great. But you have neighbors and people you work with and go to school with and are on your football team that would never set foot in a church. So guess what? You're the one that God would stir up to say, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna share the good news of the gospel with that person. And there's so many, it's so easy now, you can just share it with them face-to-face, one-on-one, take them out to coffee. Um, you can wait for the opportunity. I know the Lord put, do you know, have you ever sensed when the Lord tees it up for you? 
I mean, rarely does somebody walk up to you, what must I do to be saved? Like that doesn't happen very often. It's happened to me a few times, but not very often. But, but you will have, and you know what it is. I, 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 I guarantee there's some of you that are like, oh, I know this. Like somebody will walk up and say, oh, my life's in such trouble right now and I'm really dealing with depression and I just don't know what to do. God just teed it up for you. That person needs the gospel message, the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sin and the eternal hope of heaven. That's what they need. But because of whatever reason, you're hesitant to, and you'll start talking waxy eloquent about counseling and what that person needs to deal with depression, medications that they may need to take or this and that, when really what they need is the gospel message. A dead giveaway is when the Lord tees it up for you and you know that and your heart starts beating just a little faster. You're like, oh man, I'm supposed to share the gospel with this person right now. The question is, what do you do? What do you do? I love the story when my wife was uh, in college. Um, we, uh, we were going to, like I said, Southern Oregon University, which back in the late 80s, MTV, which was actually cool back then uh, in a secular, godless way, People thought it was cool. Um, but they came and did a special on our school, MTV, on all the cameramen and the trucks came in because Southern Oregon University was the top party school in America. Uh, wasn't I proud? That's where I went to school. There was a dorm that was particularly, maybe you were in it, uh, don't admit it. Uh, you were in Green Springs dorm. That's where the big party animals were, Green Springs dorm. And MTV came and did this big special, all the drinking and partying and woohoo, this is the place to run around naked and all this stuff. That was my school. Um, but my, my wife, she was, uh, after one of the classes, gonna go and uh, give some books and stuff to one of her classmates. And so she had to go into the Green Springs dorm. She walked through the halls there and gave the books to the person that she was supposed to give her books to. And on the way out, she was walking by and she saw in the corner of her eye, a girl in her dorm room sitting on a bed and she looked kind of sad and she walked by and saw that and she just felt that heartbeat. You gotta go share the gospel with that girl. And Debbie, I think if I remember right, Debbie said, oh, it must just be something, whatever. And she just kept walking. I think she made it all the way to her car and the Lord just impressed on her heart so much. You have to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the girl sitting on her dorm room bed. So she got back, in her, in, got back into the dorm room, you know, Green Springs, went up the stairs and went in and said, you know, I'm really sorry, I, I hate to bug you, but do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior? And the girl just burst into tears and Debbie sat down with her, shared the gospel. The next Sunday, the girl came to church with Debbie and accepted Christ as her savior. What would have happened if Debbie just thought, must have been the pizza I had for lunch. Man, I got that weird feeling in my heart to go and share the gospel. Uh, or, or was that the Holy Spirit? I wonder if you were so sensitive to the Holy Spirit when God tees it up for you to say, this is a person who needs to hear the gospel. What if y'all were faithful? What if Athey Creekers were faithful? Because we see 40 people saved here on a Sunday or weekend. That's wonderful. But I think thousands of people could come to Christ if people were more bold in their faith. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you, necessarily. <laughs> I'm just saying, Jesus gave you and me a challenge. Let me end with this, a few pointers. Make sure and live your life in a way that complements the gospel. One of the things that will derail your ability to share the gospel is if you're you know, doing meth, sleeping around, having sex outside of marriage, robbing the bank on the corner and murdering your neighbor. If you're doing that, you're sharing the gospel will sort of fall on deaf ears you guys are making me nervous. You're kind of like, <laughs> no, I'm serious about that. Like, yeah, you know, if you're living a sinful life, you know, you sharing the gospel. May, now, now that's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is this. Um, if you have to be perfect to share the gospel, how many of us would share the gospel? None of us, especially the pastor sitting in front of you. We're all sinners. I'm not arguing that we have to be perfect. I'm just saying you got to live your life in a way that complements the gospel, that's, that's part of the deal. But, but I also would say, if you're still a sinner, don't let Satan whisper, you're gonna share the gospel. Don't you realize you're a sinner? Don't you realize that you're imperfect? And there's some of you that won't share the gospel because you know you're a sinner. Let me just tell you, this is the way I look at it. And I've had to come to grips with this because I have to teach every Sunday, knowing good and well, I'm still a sinner. 
oh, I'm saved by grace. My sins have been washed away, but I wrestle with sin all the time, just like everybody. So what I've come to grips with is, yeah, I'm gonna try to live my life for Christ and I'm gonna try to break off all my sins and do my best, but truth is truth. So just tell the truth. Just because I still struggle with sin doesn't mean I can't tell the truth about truth. And that's what I would encourage you. Don't be afraid to share the gospel. You know, when, when the Bible says, don't be ashamed of sharing the gospel, I think some of us are ashamed because we know how far, far we fall short. And so we feel ashamed because we're sinners. But I believe that's just Satan whispering in your ear to try to get you to not share the gospel. Truth is truth, so just tell the truth. None of us are perfect, but the truth is still the truth. And I would just say, let the Holy Spirit speak through you. Don't even try to plan it out. That's what he told his disciples. Don't take a script. Don't, don't come and figure out what you're gonna say, but let my spirit speak through you and in you. And that's the way you approach it. Um, by the way, if you're a good student of the Bible and you go to Wednesday night Bible study and you do your own do devotions at home, that's gonna help the spirit bring to remembrance the things you've learned. But even if you know nothing other than this, Paul said, I have determined to know nothing. Mr. Intellect determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what you need to know. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, according to the scriptures, and he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's what you need to know. May the Lord give you boldness. We live in a day where people need desperately to hear the gospel. May the Lord give Athe Creekers and people that are watching online, give, give, give us boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. Lord, as we close this service out and hear this great admonition of Jesus, as he ascends into heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news. Lord, forgive us where we've missed opportunities. Forgive us for falling to the old lies of Satan that we're too sinful to preach the gospel or we don't know enough and we're not intellectual enough or smart enough. Lord, I pray that we put aside all those excuses and um, reasons that we have but I pray, Lord, that you just give us a boldness. Your word reminds us in the Proverbs that the wicked flees when no one's chasing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Give us boldness, Lord, as we live in this dark world and, and so many people who have not really even perhaps heard the true, perfect gospel, maybe versions that are called the gospel that really are not the gospel. I pray that, that, that these your people would be able to speak with clarity and with confidence, the truth that you came, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, as the scriptures said. So we commit this to you, Lord, and I pray that you'd put on the hearts of these, your people, specific people and even names that you've put in front of them at work or at school, where they would make it a, a point to, to be open and ready for that opportunity to share the good news, that they too might be saved by your grace through faith. We commit this to you and pray your blessing, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.